refugees and border walls, woke celebs and socialist chick, social engineering and COVID lockdowns. It's easy to get wound up over what's happening in our country and in the world. That's why it's time for Acton Unwind, a weekly roundtable discussion tackling current events from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Every Monday, join host Eric Cohn and Acton Institute experts, including Dr. Samuel Gregg, Reverend Robert Sirico, Dr. Stephen Barrows, and more in this weekly audio public square where news, politics, religion, and culture meet for an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. Acton Unwind will explain the news of the week through the Acton Institute's unique perspective, connecting good intentions with sound economics as it works to promote and to shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous, one characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash NR or search Acton Unwind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's Acton org slash nr to subscribe please check it out hi everybody uh, this is Luke and welcome to constitutionally speaking uh, it's a little bit different this week because we're ha- we're doing things a little a little differently we're gonna have our first guest on the show and that guest is my co-host Jay cost. Um, I am interviewing Jay about his his you know major new biography of James Madison, which is just coming out, um, and we're going to talk about it and talk about where you can get it. Uh, we have a special offer for listeners of the show who buy the book, and um, yeah, I'm going to pick Jay's brain about all things James Madison, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. We have not set aside the congressional series; we'll get back to it, but obviously, you know. Jay is quite prodigious, so it's I could say probably a book only comes out every two years from him. But in this case, uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do the book, and then we'll get back to Congress in the next episode. So Jay, first, let me say congratulations. Um, this is this is a huge achievement. I know it's a long time in the making. Um, bravo! Uh, can you just tell us the basic facts? You know, when publisher, um, you know, where they can get it, what the full title is, and um, a little bit of background, then we'll get into the meat. Sure. So the book is called James Madison, America's First Politician. Uh, We're hoping that uh, this podcast drops on Tuesday, November 9th, which is the pub date. So if you're listening to this on or after Tuesday, November 9th, uh, it's available now. Uh, And it's been published by Basic Books, which is one of the uh, biggest uh, publishers in the country. So it should be at your local bookstore. You can always get it on uh, Amazon as well and barnesandnoble.com and Books Million and all those other places. And, uh, you know, when the last podcast, when the last book came out was right around the time we had started doing Constitutionally Speaking, which was back in uh, the last book came out in the spring of 2018. And we had decided to do a little of a bonus, which was um, uh, bonus podcasts of ranking and ranting about presidential uh, uh, tenures. This is the famous or infamous podcast series where Luke, you called Rutherford Hayes history's greatest monster. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I had told listeners back then that uh, uh, if they wanted a copy of these episodes, all they had to do was uh, email me proof of purchase of the last book. 
Well, that I'm going to extend that. So if you have a copy of the new book and you would like, I think we did like nine hours. Yeah, we did nine hours and I think each of us got through about a bottle of whiskey in the process. Yeah, I think so. It was not They're colorful. It was not good for our livers. Um, So yeah, we did like nine hours of slightly sloshy presidential rankings. Um, And if you would like a copy of those, you may... um, email me. My email address is the letter J, C-O-S-T 241, jcost241 at gmail.com. And if you send me proof of purchase of the new book, I will gladly send those along if you like. But I have, I I was thinking about doing something a little bit different uh, this time around, uh, something a little more personal. And I I would take an opportunity here uh, to uh, tell you what it is and then tell you what my thinking behind it was. But um, I am offering, if you buy a copy, it'll have to be a hard copy of the book because it won't work otherwise, but I'm offering um, autographed plates. So the idea is, is that if you send me proof of purchase of the book, I will mail you uh, a plate, you know, sort of a three by four adhesive that you can put on, you know, in on the signature page of the book and it'll have my signature. And also if you want a personalized message, you may uh, just ask and I'll be happy to write something to you. And also if you're hearing this before, I don't know, like December 1st, 2nd, 3rd, I'm pretty confident I can get it to you before Christmas. Um, so if you, you have somebody in your family who's a likes historical biographies and you want to get them something, a little bonus with a signature plate on it, I'd be more than happy to do that. An autographed hard copy biography is a great gift. It's a great gift for dads. It's a great gift for moms. It's a great stocking stuffer. Jay's being too polite. Go buy three copies. He'll sign them. He'll make a note. You guys will love it. I'm going to do it. Um, you should do it too. Yeah. And I wanted to, so like the, and, and I wanted to take an opportunity here as well to um, express my gratitude uh, to you, Luke, and also to our audience here, constitutionally speaking, as somebody who is a professional writer. It is one of the most nerve wracking things. You know, the most nerve wracking thing about being a writer is not whether or not somebody disagrees with you, because that's actually, you know, part and parcel of, you know, writing, but it's not having anybody read you, read your work. And, you know, that happened to me in graduate school at various points in times. I had professors who very, very clearly didn't read the papers that I had submitted. It's just such a dispiriting um, experience. And to have an audience, like constitutionally speaking, of people who listen and who are engaged and who appreciate um, my analysis and my thoughts about the founding and, and Luke's as well in our conversations is just such a, it makes this a very rewarding thing to do. Um, so, and I wanted to express my gratitude, but, you know, another thing though, is, is that I, I'm not sure that this book would have been possible without constitutionally speaking because as anybody who is um, a professional teacher or something uh, will appreciate, you know, a lot of times your best ideas come when you're putting together a lecture or when you're actually having a lecture. Uh, um, and that is something that uh, is really was 
possible through constitutionally speaking. Like in the course of our lecture series on the Virginians and going back to the Bill of Rights and then even talking about the Virginia plan itself, I, you know, it was material I, I knew, obviously, because I was able to comment on it, but talking, it, talking it out and conversing with Luke about it enabled oftentimes me to look at things from a different angle and created a, frame, a research framework um, that I think was uh, interesting. And, and I think that if even if you've read biographies of James Madison before, I think you're going to be surprised at a couple points along the way. And I think maybe you and our audience won't be surprised because maybe you will have heard a version of that idea. And that's sort of why I want to say thank you, because in a lot of cases, it was here in this forum that the kernel of those ideas that ended up becoming the book um, really um, came through. So if you are interested in a signature plate, um, it's completely free of charge. I bought the signature plates. I'm putting them in the mail. Um, you'll just, all you have to do is just open the mail and attach it. So the email address is jcost241 at gmail. Um, and uh, so just send me an email with your address. And if you have any preferences for a personalized signature, it's November, you'll be listening to this on November 9th. I'm still waiting to get the signature plates and the envelopes and all that stuff in the mail. So I have all that on sort of a rush delivery, so it won't happen right away. But as soon as I get those plates in, I'm going to start signing them, putting them in the mail, and you should, and you know, you'll get them um, as soon as I can get them out the door. There's going to be like virtually no delay on my end. So yeah, so I just with that sort of out there, I thought it would be fun to um, have a conversation about uh, the book. And just some sort of high points about, about, you know, the book, I don't want to give everything away, but <laughs> maybe kind of a conversation about, you know, just sort of big picture reflections on Madison. Sure. Well, so let me, let me start by asking you, because, you know, you'd, you've written a book on Madison and Hamilton and political economy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've written a dissertation on the subject. Oftentimes it can feel like you're retreading stuff. And, and I agree with you that these conversations, I certainly find them. They, they forced me to you know re-examine and they also reanimate some some questions that I have um, but then also I always learn things when we have these conversations so what I mean what would you say what jumped out at you what are you know we'll call it two or three big surprises about Madison that you wouldn't have you didn't know going in despite having you know written a book on him or about him in some respects that, that and maybe they can be biographical details or even things about his ideas or the way his life changed et cetera. Yeah, Anything that, like that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say probably the biggest one would be how disingenuous the Federalist Papers are. Um, <laughs> I love that coming yeah. in with a swinger. Yeah, um, and it's it and because I had been trained in sort of doing political theory, you know, you read in the history of Western philosophy, you know, you read Locke, you you know, like in the in the sort of the canon, you read Locke, you read Montesquieu, you read Hume, then you read. Publius, and then you go on and read John Stuart Mill or whoever in the 1800s. And, you know, it was always just sort of the implied value there that these are writings of a similar kind as sort of David Hume's essays on politics or Montesquieu's, Montesquieu's Spirit of the Lust. But they're not like that. Um, and we know that they're not like that in the sense that they were written as polemics, which, you know, Spirit of the Laws was not written as a polemic. 
maybe the closest sort of analog to would be Machiavelli's The Prince, where he's trying to sort of worm his way back into the good graces of, you know, uh, or into the good graces of Lorenzo de' Medici. But I would say it's even more than that. So I'll give you say maybe Rousseau's discourses or or Locke's two treatises. Those were pretty polemical. But yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So, and the most striking example to me is the one Federalist essay of Madison's we all read is Federalist 10. But as Madison is in the process of writing Federalist 10 about how the extended republic will mitigate the problems of injustice and factionalism, he is writing a letter to Thomas Jefferson arguing that the Constitution will do no such thing. The actual argument of Federalist 10 is really a defense of the Virginia plan for a variety of reasons. The the only real part of the Constitution that directly resembles the Virginia plan is the House. But think through Madison's basic theory of the extended republic. The theory is, is that a diverse group of people can safely govern because no single faction dominates. So that requires two things. The first thing it requires is a truly national government, which the Constitution is not. It's a federal government. And that's why Madison fought the Senate tooth and nail. But another, another even from Madison's perspective in 1787, a more important uh, view is that this Congress or this government, if it is safe to govern, then it should have the power to govern. And so this is why Madison in the Virginia plan calls for Congress to have power to exercise legislation in all cases where the harmony of the nation is at stake, and also to veto state legislation that interferes with the harmony of the nation. That is what he was so upset about while he was writing Federalist 10. So Federalist 10 is actually a defense of the Virginia plan that he repurposed. What I think is so interesting though about it and sort of a follow-up is sort of, I don't want you to, I don't want our listeners to think that Madison was being a hack here. He really wasn't being a hack. Madison at his core believed in, and now the Madison of 1727 is gonna have fundamentally different views, right? So, you know, 40 years later, after the constitution has been in operation for that long, his views are going to change. So we're just thinking about Madison in the fall of 1787. You know, he thought the um, idea of an imperio in imperium, a government of governments was, he called it a solecism, right? It's a contradiction in terms. One unit or the other was going to dominate. What's interesting is that the anti-federalist held the exact same view. In fact, Madison and Brutus both used the word solecism to describe this. Madison in his personal correspondence, Brutus in his essays. But what's so interesting is that they believed that the dom- they disagreed about who was going to dominate. Brutus believed that the federal government was going to destroy the state governments. Madison in his private correspondence is convinced of the opposite. So this is actually, ironically, what makes Madison such a great polemicist on behalf of the Constitution. It's not that he thought it was going to work. It's that he thought Brutus was exactly wrong and how he thought it was going to fail. So this is one reason why Madison is really effective in his 
lengthy sort of discussion about the House and his discussion about the relationship between the federal, uh, between the states and the national government, why he's so effective in his discussion of the powers of Congress, he was convinced that Brutus was exactly wrong. So it's really interesting. So that's one thing. I would say another thing, uh, so two more, one of substance, and we can talk about the second one and then and then one of just sort of like, like kind of a silly point, but how important his post-presidency was. Um, I, I knew when I got into the research of this that Madison, you know, Madison lives until the 1830s and he almost lives too long, um, but I didn't realize how vigorous a role Madison played in combating the heresy of nullification which is uh, a really a really extraordinary thing that we could talk about that in a little bit but then the other thing and the final thing is how frequently madison has to clean up a mess that that jefferson makes <laughs> for a variety of reasons so like jefferson during the ratification writes a letter to somebody i don't remember who uh, like saying, oh, you know, what we should do is we should have nine states ratify and then the remainder hold back to basically, you know, leverage the uh, federal government into amending it. Patrick Henry gets his hands on this letter and it's a problem for Madison at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. You know, after Adams wins the presidency in 1796, Jefferson wants to write him a letter congratulating him and, you know, sort of commiserating about in the phrase that Jefferson uses is commiserating about our arch friend from New York, in other words, Hamilton. And Madison, of course, realizes this is a terrible idea and tells Jefferson to, you know, not send it. You know, the hemming and hawing about a constitutional amendment for the Louisiana Purchase. And then finally, Jefferson, after the tariff of 1824, an aged Jefferson is sort of writes these, makes a point about the constitutionality of the tariff that the nullifiers end up trotting out after Jefferson's already died. So even as an old man with rheumatoid arthritis, Madison is still defending his friend. So I, I always find that very interesting. Jefferson, there's a lot of good things to say about Jefferson, but you're not going to find a lot of them in my book. <laughs> so I mean, with, Without a doubt, a, a colorful character. What, uh, before we jump on to sort of a bigger question or to the nullification question. What was the origin of that friendship, right? I oh. mean, Jefferson had plenty of factotums, and, but Madison is more than a factotum. And on the other hand, like, it's not a friendship of equals exactly, is it? No, it's not. Um, it's hard to say because Madison was very careful about the letters that were left behind and what was left behind. So purely personal details are really few and far between within their correspondence. Their correspondence is useful from a research perspective because Jefferson is so frequently away. And so Madison writes these very long and very candid sort of letters about what, what's happening and what Madison thinks. So that's very useful. Um, I think that their friendship was, they were just had very similar interests. They were interested in nature. They were interested in politics. They were interested in philosophy. I, so I think that's a, that's a lot of it. I think another thing, and I don't really get into this. I don't get into this in the book because I don't want to be, I didn't want to be overly speculative, but I think that you know, Jefferson's wife dies in, I want to say 1782, she dies. And Jefferson is a widower for the rest of his life. And, and I think that it is significant that Madison does not get 
married until 1794. And so that the two of them can actually kind of be bachelor buddies together in many respects. Um, and I think that that might have been part of it as well. I would say. And I, I think another thing to your point about Jefferson being the senior partner um, is that Madison took that very seriously. There was never any implication that Madison was going to line jump over Jefferson, which Monroe actually tries to do to Madison in 1808. So there is line jumping in 1808. That could be a significant negative deleterious effect on a friendship Madison, when Monroe tried to take the presidency in 1808 um, the two of them stopped talking for over a year as a consequence even even as Monroe was secretary of state well yeah it's it's interesting because <laughs> Madison well Madison brings Monroe in as ah, secretary right. of state in 1810 basically because his current secretary of state robert smith is completely incapable of doing That's right. the job i, I and, forgot smith is the first secretary of state yeah, and thus the and, heir apparent and when he proves incompetent that's yes right. and and also his brother i can't remember his brother's name from maryland senator from maryland is like one of the chief sort of antagonists of the madison presidency in the senate and so finally madison's like enough is enough and but it was one of the pro and it's this is something that I think readers will find interesting is that when I was doing the research on Madison's um, presidency, you know, the top line, there's still a lot of really impressive characters at the very top of the country. Obviously, Madison, Monroe, who I think has a really impressive career in the 1800s, and Gallatin. Mm -hmm. But if you look underneath the three of them, you're not going to see very many people whose reputations are worth remembering and they're all in their late 50s or in into their 60s like the next person on the list who you look at and say wow he's really some is andrew jackson who's 45 and wow. then the below that clay and calhoun and all those guys are in their 30s um and you see a similar thing in the military as well during the war of 1812 the military leadership was basically all old generals from the revolutionary war which meant they were all fat some of them were literally addicted to laudanum <laughs> right <laughs> uh so yeah they were some they were dope fiends right i mean you have um oh, I, I always forget his name who was a Whig presidential candidate in 1852 do you remember his name i don't um, know i, don't know. I always i always forget his name uh, anyway, he was a young officer. Oh, Winfield Scott. There. Oh, Winfield Scott. Yeah, Win old fuss Win and feathers. Yeah, Winfield Scott was like this really cool, like officer who was like brave and just willing to do anything. And you know, Jackson, sort of the same way. You still have William Henry Harrison, who's still youngish. Um, so you get these young officers, but the top tier leadership is just garbage. Um, so anyway, that's that's a problem Madison ends up facing in the war um, that the, the, the second generation of Jeffersonian leaders kind of sucked. Mm. Right. Mm. They were not like there were not a lot of good guys in there. Right. Like there's no real like you looked at like if you look at Congress before Henry Clay gets in, into the mix. Like, look at Congress from, like, 1798 until 1810. You don't really see a lot of people. You're like, oh, that guy's going places. And right. that ends up percolating up into by the by the time of the War of 1812. Madison's looking around for somebody to be Secretary of Navy. He can't find anybody. Um, 
Sorry, I had some background noise there. So, I mean, how then would you rank Madison as a president? I mean, do you think he's like, is he a good one? Is he a bad one? Is he middle of the road? What's I, I mean, we've sort of gone through the exercise, but where does his presidency stand? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, well, we both have a prejudice against presidential rankings. Um, but I mean, sort of as to evaluate him as a president, I would say he's come under Henry Adams wrote, the sort of first account of his presidency and Jefferson's presidency. And it was a very negative assessment and it ended up influencing the historiography of Madison's presidency, even as we've gotten to the point now where nobody reads Henry Adams anymore. So we just sort of have this kind of notion that Madison was duped by Napoleon and that he was a weak president. I don't think that's true. I don't think that he was a great president because for a variety of reasons, I don't think that presidential greatness was something that he thought should be obtained because he was at his core a Whig um, and thought that Congress, the legislative body spoke for the people. I think that is the source of his greatest failure, which is that he allowed Congress to dither. And he, um, as he's trying in his first term to negotiate a settlement with the British, Congress refuses to give him any kind of useful diplomatic tools, like something approaching a commercial warfare measure with actual teeth. He doesn't get that. He gets the Non-Intercourse Act, he gets Macon's Bill Number 2. He tries to bluff the latter or tries to use the latter, Macon's Bill Number 2, to bluff the British, and it doesn't work. So I would say that is probably his greatest failure. And it even goes beyond that. The, the, the malcontents um, basically bullied him into not accepting Gallatin as Secretary of State, which right. was humiliating to Gallatin. Gallatin eventually like writes a letter to Jefferson suggesting, I think I'm going to resign because I can't take this humiliation. To be, I mean, and Gallatin was not a particularly vain man. And I think that doesn't speak well of Madison. Um, but there are things to like about Madison. Uh, there's three in particular. You know, when he enters the White House in 1809, he's got Britain and France treating the country badly. And, you know, he's at one point he says, you know, we're left with the horrifying choices of like a war with both countries or a mortifying peace. In other words, they're just going to make us eat a sack of, you know, shit. Um, and what he does during the course of his first term is sort of exclude the French. Not that the French deserve to be excluded because Napoleon was not treating the Americans very well, but Madison recognized, and he was right about this, that Great Britain, not France, was, was and will, would continue to be our great rival in the world. Um, and, and that Great Britain was looking to keep us in place. That was a major rhetorical theme throughout his first term was it wasn't just that Great Britain was violating our rights. It was that Great Britain was violating our rights because they wanted to keep us in their place, in our place, so that they could be the dominant force in that sort of the Atlantic world. So Madison does a very good job of setting it up as, it, as Great Britain is the bad guy even though France had not behaved very well. So that's one thing. Another thing, and I would suggest that juxtaposing Madison against Woodrow Wilson, 
because mm. the War of eighteen twelve and World War One are similar in the sense that the United States gets br- brought into a conflict because of commerce, and uh, Madison, um, unlike Wilson, does not try and transform the War of eighteen twelve into anything other than that. Like Wilson, basically, you know, a bunch of northeastern industrialists and financiers were making money hand over fist trading with Great Britain. Germany had had enough of that. And Wilson then declares it a war for the for democracy or whatever the hell he called it, um, which was just the great, all, the great crusade. Yeah, which is just all BS. It was all nonsense. The World War One in historical retrospect, America's involvement in it looks awfully, you know, awfully parochial. Uh, Madison doesn't use any kind of great justifications beyond like we have to stand up to Great Britain because they can't be allowed to do this to us. But there's another thing, too. The War of 1812 was unpopular with a, a fairly large portion of the country. The vote in the Senate was 1912, reflecting uniform opposition from New England. Likewise, World War I was on, unpopular with people of German ancestry. And so what does Wilson do? Well, Wilson begins to, you know, engage in a systematic program of government-sponsored propaganda to demonize the Germans, uh, so much so that large swaths of German-Americans end up anglicizing their names like, oh, I don't know, Cost, C-O-S-T, right? <laughs> Uh, to get away from the public pre- prejudices which are stirred up. And then on top of that, he passes the Enacts the Sedition Act of 1917 to basically criminalize dissent. And yes, he throws Eugene Debs, who was his opponent in the 1912 election, throws Debs into jail, which is mm-hmm. insane. Uh, Madison does nothing like that. Mad- if Woodrow Wilson had been president during the Hartford Convention, uh, Wilson would have sent the army up there to throw those guys in jail. Madison does nothing of the sort. In other words, Madison takes seriously the political rights that are granted under the Constitution that Wilson found to be inconvenient and Wilson tried to like, you know, uh, get around them. Uh, and really an incredible embarrassment to the country is the domestic suppression of opposing views in what was a very controversial war. The War of 1812 was likewise a controversial war. There were good arguments not to go into that war. I mean, ultimately, um, we were sort of acting as war profiteers during that war um, because we were, the French and Spanish West Indies couldn't feed themselves so that we we jumped in there. So we were keeping those colonies afloat and thereby indirectly facilitating the Napoleonic war machine. There is a good argument not to go into that war. I actually think it's the better argument. Uh, But the point though, is that from Madison's perspective, he didn't try and shut those people up by putting them in jail. I think that's an extraordinary thing. And then the final point, we've talked about this at length. It's talked about in my last book, The Price of Greatness, is that what Madison ends up accomplishing in that, in the 15th Congress, the post-war Congress, protective tariff, a mild protective tariff, um, uh, 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 the Second Bank of the United States, a renewed emphasis on internal improvements, is an economic program that is going to dominate the political economy of the United States basically all the way up until 
uh, the Great Depression. And we've talked about how these are all at their essence, Hamiltonian ideas. They are on an economic level, but again, we've talked about this before in previous episodes, the politics of it was distinctly uniquely Madisonian. Mm. Um, and I think that he should deserve a lot of credit for those. So the, I, I would say on balance, if you look at the presidencies before Lincoln, you have two who are real standouts as sort of like titans of the executive branch. You have Jackson and you have Washington. And then you have men who just sort of are completely outside of their depth. Um, and then you have these sort of like men who have a more narrow understanding of the executive office and who work within those boundaries. And of those, I think Madison is one of the best. So, you know, I actually want to delve a little bit more into this, um, his, his treatment of domestic dissent during the War of 1812, not so much the actual history of, of what happened, but rather, you know, no one ever accused Hamilton of showing a sort of, um, shall we say, uh, to, for, of demurring prudently, right? <laughs> like that was, you know, whereas you see in Madison, you see this kind of, I mean, he, he does a very nice job of striking the balance. Obviously, you mentioned cleaning up messes for Jefferson all the time. There is a kind, I don't want to say moderation because that has kind of an ideological valence that I don't think is right. I mean, a central premise of this book is that Madison's quite radical in many of his thoughts, right? But um, doesn't, isn't there something in the way in which Madison tacks this sort of prudential course through very dangerous circumstances that hollers back to hollers back, listen to me, harkens back to <laughs> the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, where again, Jefferson sort of goes off the proverbial reservation and Madison is there re reeling things back in. Yes, I think that's right. Madison was a radical on a philosophical level in his understanding of how government should operate. He wanted a big, diverse body of citizens. Um, he had faith in the process. He trusted the process, as we say in sports analogies now <laughs> um but and so if you if you think of madison in looking backwards he is a radical right um and also he spearheads what is and i wrote about this in the wall street journal he spearheads a you know basically a bloodless coup upon the articles of confederation which itself is a very radical move Right. But he didn't come to that decision lightly. And I think that gets to your point that Madison within the within the political sphere was a pragmatic. He was he was because moderation often gets sort of like touted as being unprincipled. Edmund Randolph was moderate in that sense. Edmund Randolph would, you know, wouldn't make a decision until he, you know, licked his thumb, stuck it in the air and saw which way the wind was blowing. That's not how Madison operated. Madison was pragmatic in the sense that he um, wanted to get the policy win and he was willing to do what needed to be done to get the policy win and not try to, he, he didn't inject his vanity into it. He didn't um, want to make a big show about things. He was willing to compromise on points that were important to other people for the sake of getting what he wanted. Um, he could be mag magnanimous in that respect. He wanted to get the W. And I think a good illustration of that is the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, wh where what is the most efficient way 
to oppose, if we're going to bring the states in as, um, you know, into the federal conversation on a more formal level, we're bringing the state legislatures in. So what's the best way to do that to win the most people over? Well, Madison proposes what he calls interposition, which in a, ironically, in one of Hamilton's essays, he says that when the federal government oversteps its boundaries, the states can sound the alarm. That's exactly what Madison was trying to do, um, trying to get the states aware of what's going on and the states can use their political powers granted to them under the Constitution um, to influence and try and get this law repealed. What does Jefferson do? Jefferson calls for <laughs> nullification, right? And that's a sort of a good example of that is not going to be, you know, it's it's poorly, it's ill-conceived for one. And also it's not efficient. You don't need to go that far, you know? And, and there's a great irony there too, because as Jefferson is calling for this very extreme um, solution. He's also encouraging his friends to be cool because there was real worry that the new army that Ham Adams had sort of like created and had effectively put Hamilton in charge of, there was a legitimate concern that Hamilton was going to march this thing down into Virginia. So why in goodness sake would Jefferson give them a pretense to march it into Kentucky? It's just very... Jefferson often, I think, would lose his cool. And I think that's that's a real difference between Madison and others. That Madison very rarely, I'm not sure I've ever, ever saw him lose his cool. He could be really bitter to the point of being butthurt when he lost a battle that was a political battle that was very important to him. So he was really pissed off in September 1787 because he felt like he lost things that he should have won and he was really pissed off in July of 1790 over the so-called compromise of 1790 um but he that there's a difference between being like really angry um after the fact and like losing your cool while the debate's still happening that I never saw him do um which I think is really impressive and that, I mean, that applies, obviously we have something of a biased perspective because his notes form such an important part of it, but that applies to the Constitutional Convention too. Actually, let me broaden that question. Like what, what role did Madison actually play in the convention? Because as I said, we have his notes. They're not our only notes, but they're certainly the lion's share of the notes. So we're, we're sort of seeing it through Madison's lens. But I mean, what, what can we tell about one, his role uh, both as a speaker and as someone influencing things, and also to what extent is his account a, a, a fulsome accounting? Yeah, Madison's role in the convention. That was a, uh, well, let me maybe start answering that by just sort of approaching it how, approaching the answer from a personal perspective, because I remember when I was going to start writing that chapter, it was actually, I think I remember it was actually in like July. June and July of 2019, I sat down to write those. And I, I was not sure what to do with respect to that, because I did not want to give a recapitulation of the Constitutional Convention, because for starters, you know, I have 30 pages to do it. You can't do it justice in 30 pages. And on top of that, how many times has that book been written? 
right? Since Miracle of Philadelphia onwards, there's another, let's use Madison's notes and dramatize the Constitutional Convention. That book comes out like every five to seven years. I didn't want to insert that in the middle. And so I was sort of thinking about, well, how am I going to deal with this? And, and we had mentioned earlier in the, in the conversation about Madison's anger and frustration at the end of the uh, convention in Jefferson's letters. And it got me sort of noodling with what I think is probably the chapter that I'm most proud of in the book is, is chapter four on the Constitutional Convention. You know, I'd like to think that there are a lot of new ideas in the book inserted in various places where the, the same basic narrative of Madison's story is told, but there are new perspectives and fresh ways of doing things here and there. But I, I think, though, that the chapter on the Constitutional Convention is probably, I haven't seen anybody write a chapter like this, so that's not to say it's not out there. I mean, I'm pretty well read with respect to the material, but, you know, you never know. Um, but I, I, I'm very pleased with that chapter, and I think it's a, it's a novel kind of perspective. Um, so I'll say that as sort of uh, in advance. So Madison's role at the convention is very political in the sense that it's very much an effort to set the agenda. That's the function of the Virginia plan. He gets to Philadelphia early. He meets with Franklin and the Pennsylvania delegations. He sort of hammers out an informal, almost a gentleman's agreement between the Virginia and Pennsylvania delegates to uh, uh, get behind the Virginia plan. And I think that that was also very well trod ground. But then, and I, I think that sort of the research puzzle that I was posed with was, okay, so if he's known as the father of the constitution and he did all of these things in April, late April into May to set the stage, then why is he so upset in September? And, and the reason I, I, thinking it through and going through the notes, his notes, is he saw his most essential ideas or what he took at the time to be his most essential ideas just whittled away. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a very frustrating experience for him. And it was different than the debates with the anti-federalists because the debates with the anti-federalists, the anti-federalists are really coming from the perspective of ideas of the classical Republic um, the ideas of, you know, the Florentine Republic or Harrington's Agrarian Republic or even going all the way back to Polybius's, you know, celebration of the Roman Republic and the small freeholder being the anchor of good government, blah, blah, blah. That is the argument with the anti-federalists is, I mean, it's very hyperbolic, but it's also very principled in the sense that the anti-federalists have a series of pr principles to which they're holding and they think the constitution is inferior. Madison's response to that is a principled disagreement in the sense that he thinks that the old ideas of civic republicanism are largely mythological, that small republics aren't gonna work, that virtue of that quantity is not a reliable bulwark against tyranny, and that what we need to do is, as he says in Federalist 10, extend the sphere. 
the the debate with the anti-federalists while it's very hyperbolic and even as madison is very um disingenuous there's still a kind of principled fight over the scope of national power and also the nature of the national government those are principled ideas those sorts of disagreements don't really happen in philadelphia Certainly not to the same extent. There are people like Luther Martin who have a principal disagreement with, you know, a national government. But the that's not really why the Virginia plan is diluted, because the the people who would end up becoming the anti-federalists, by and large, don't attend the Constitutional Convention. Right. Patrick Henry doesn't come, for instance. Richard Henry Lee doesn't come. Um, you know, the only real sort of anti-federalist-ish guy from Massachusetts is Elbridge Gary, and he's mostly just a, a you know, uh, idiosyncratic autodidact who ends up charting his own course through his whole life. Right. You know, you don't get you don't you don't get a Samuel Adams or yeah. John Hancock. And George, George Mason is certainly not Patrick Henry. Right? No, like, and, and George Mason, I think I feel bad. George Mason is one of those guys. He really did long-term damage to his reputation at the convention. Madison sort of makes sort of in a kind of not so basically says yada, yada, yada. Mason's gout was getting to him and he was super crabby by the end. <laughs> like that's sort of the idea, honestly, because Mason participates in a very, um, constructive way he's not like luther martin um and so the obstreperous you, you mean you mean he's sober most of the yeah time. he's sober and actually useful mason's obstreperousness during the ratification debate is really not foreshadowed until like september mm. um so it's not really so what's going on here this and this this was the argument that i um i sort of put together and again it might not be original but i've never seen it so my the way I would put it in sort of contemporary language is Madison runs into a bunch of NIMBYs at the Constitutional <laughs> Convention. OK, so they're all nationalists. And they are all basically willing to go along with Madison's idea of a national republic, but not in my backyard. All right. Not when it gets too close to my own interests. And he runs into two particularly fierce groups that have the votes to actually do something about it. The first are the small states. Um, and this and one of the challenges that they run into is that the small states really do send some good people. Right. The, like the Connecticut delegation, the New Jersey delegation, the Delaware delegation even you know really really solid groups of people though the new hampshire delegation is not they come in late and they mostly just complain about how little they're getting paid um but those three states are a solid group of serious men who are there to really consider a national union but they need to have the senate we're not, you know, we agree we need a national republic. You know, Dickinson is very clear about this. You know, he agrees in principle, but he was sent by Delaware to protect the interests of Delaware. And this is ultimately why they have to compromise because Dickinson is just not going to back down. Um, and, and, and neither are the Connecticut delegates and neither are the New Jersey delegates. You know, William Patterson is a serious guy. He's the attorney general of New Jersey. He's a serious guy. 
And, and so they really don't have a choice. They have to back down. And, and ultimately, Madison's problem is, is that among the large states, only maybe half of the delegates from the large states feel strongly about the, the proportional representation in the Senate. Franklin certainly doesn't, um, you know, in, you know, Rufus King from Massachusetts certainly does, uh, but not Nathaniel Gorham from Massachusetts. He's willing to cut a deal. Right. You know, James Wilson agrees with him. Uh, but like I said, not Franklin. And, you know, George Mason doesn't really agree. I mean, they agree, but they're, wi- they're not willing to skunk the whole project over this. So that is something I think that really upsets Madison. And I, and I think the bigger thing that upsets him is the fight over federal power. And the, um, the, in particular, the extent to which the South just carves up the Virginia plan's grant of power like a turkey. Mm. on thanksgiving now that madison's veto of the state legislative legislators was overwhelmingly defeated he couldn't even get governor morris to agree to that one Mm. and it was probably an example of madison i mean he was just 36 years old at that point it's probably his his theory is getting a little ahead of his prudence at that point like are are we really to believe that the state governments are going to allow congress to you know have the same function that the king had over the colonies i don't think so um but uh beyond that though what you really see some interesting action is when the committee of detail gets their hands on the the constitution because most of the debate happens in the committee of the whole and they're all they're doing is basically debating propositions, resolutions. They're not actually putting together the language of the Constitution. That gets done by the Committee of Detail, where uh, John Rutledge from South Carolina is is basically holds the whip hand. And so you see the Southerners do the exact same thing that the that the small states do is, yeah, hey, we're in favor of the National Union, but you're not touching slavery. Right. The original sort of like the original ask of the Southerners is extraordinary. They wanted one to one representation in the House for slaves, enslaved people to to free free men. Um, They wanted no taxation on exports. They wanted no regulation of the international slave trade. And they wanted a two thirds majority for navigation acts. So basically everything that involves slavery, they wanted to keep it exactly the same way as under the Articles of Confederation. And the, the brilliance of this from a bargaining position is they make such, a, such an extreme request and force the Northerners to compromise on this. And so what you see then in both of these cases, you see a lack of faith with respect to the logic of the extended republic, but not in a general lack of faith, but a lack of faith as it gets closer to the parochial interests of the delegates. Mm. Now, I think that the, now Madison later on praises the delegates. He does this in the Federalist Papers, praises them for being able to put their own parochial interests aside. And I think by the end of his life, he was really amazed that they managed to do that. And I think they did to a remarkable extent, but they didn't do it completely. And I think that that for him was an extremely, extremely frustrating experience so that by the time we get to, you know, like September 15th, he's writing a letter to Jefferson 
that is like this constitution is a dog's lunch um it's not going to work it's ridiculous and that so that's why is that he's talking to nationalists with an asterisk and i, I would say i would i would add one other point though is that madison you know his own hypocrisy on slavery is it's not as noticeable as jefferson's because again jefferson's such a dramatic uh, you know if jefferson had gone to like a modern high school he would have been in the he would have been in the theater with the theater kids right, jefferson's right. one of those guys right jefferson, while he's you know having an affair and i use that term loosely because i was gonna say raping yeah. sally hemmings she doesn't have the right or the ability to say no while he's his his, his late wife's teenage half-sister yes exactly who by the way kind of looks like her yeah um while he's raping her he's talking about, oh slavery we need to get rid of slavery and you know like madison doesn't have anything like that you know there's nothing that madison was not you know never did anything like that with his his enslaved people um but he he knows like jefferson he knows that slavery is wrong mm-hmm. he knows he's not he's he's a, he, he is probably it's better said to call him a western chauvinist than a racist Mm. so he doesn't believe i i don't think i mean maybe he did but his writing suggests that like the enslaved people and the native americans could be quote-unquote civilized and made capable of self-government but that their religions their manners their cultures i think he calls it his i don't know whatever but like the idea though is that you know he in at the constitutional convention he refers to slavery being uh, insufferable because of what he calls the mere distinction of color, right? Mm. Which implies that he's not a racial essentialist, or at least maybe part of him wasn't. I don't, maybe he was, or maybe he flip-flopped. I don't know. I don't think his views on the differences were entirely, he didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this regardless. But here's the thing though, is that one of the requirements of the Virginia plan, right, is, you know, the Republican principle of the majority ruling. It's not a, it's not an oligarchic system. So the three-fifths clause essentially brings in a kind of oligarchy into the Constitution because property ownership is going to be a measure of representation, but only property ownership of a certain kind. And Madison does not stand up to that in the at the at the he's quiet during the debate mm-hmm. on the representation of uh, because I think that it's his own, I think it's his own preferences, his own parochialism is is entangled in that um okay and so i think you know he i mean i think like anybody he can't really look beyond those things but i think another thing i don't know it's hard for me to say it's it's challenging because you know you want to have insight into okay you want to have insight into okay what's this guy actually thinking about these things but he lived so long that he ends up kind of um editing his own letters and so there's a lot of things we frankly don't have we have like for instance we have very little of his correspondence with dolly you know so and the the letters can, can i just jump in there and say sure. ex- expound on that because i yeah. think dolly is you know because of her behavior during the war uh, you know she's probably one of the best known of the early first ladies right oh, after yes. maybe martha right um and yet madison mary's late in life comparatively yes. And, um, you know, what, what, what was the nature of the marriage? I mean, I, I guess 
Abigail Adams is probably the best known of the early first ladies, but Dolly might be number two, right? Dolly was awesome. <laughs> Let me just say, he, Madison absolutely just married up. She outkicked was, his coverage. He outkicked his coverage. She was beautiful for starters. I mean, if you see portraits of her, she is stunningly beautiful. Um, and she had uh, just a, a, a larger than life spirit to her. She was kind. She was warm. She was inviting. She made everybody feel welcome. Um, she was a remarkable woman. Um, and she was a remarkable politician as well. That, that is, a, is sort of a story that I only get to hint at um, in the, you know, I don't really, because it's not a biography about Dolly, but Dolly was the best hostess as a first lady that the country, I'm not sure that we've ever had a hostess as gracious and as effective as Dolly. Um, she had the sort of the natural beauty of, um, of a Jacqueline Kennedy, but a warmth and kindness of spirit that is, I don't, I'm not even sure anybody compares, but then she also has like the political instincts of an Eleanor Roosevelt. It's remarkable um, because you re recall here that the context is important. Nowadays, like if you go to Washington, D.C., it's a poverty of riches in terms of the things that you can do down there. You know, you can go to the Kennedy Center, you can get great meals, you can go baseball, hockey, you do anything. You can leave every weekend when the weather's bad. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, you just hop on I-270 and you'll be out of town eventually. Uh, but in the 1800s, the early 1800s, right, the capital moves down there in 1801. It's trash. It's a city on paper. The roads, you know, it's swampy. You know, frankly, three presidents die in the between, you know, Polk and uh, Harrison and Zachary Taylor all die under mysterious circumstances that they might have gotten, you know, some sort of disease from drinking water contaminated with human waste. I've seen theories about that. It was an awful place. And, and the, and these, the men would, the congressmen would sit in these boarding houses all, all night, and just talk about politics. And it was just terrible. And the problem that, that, with with Jefferson is that Jefferson is um, living the life of a bachelor in the White House, and he doesn't like to have parties. He likes to throw, you know, informal dinners. And so Dolly becomes the hostess with the mostest in early Washington. She's the one who throws parties that are actually fun. And, and it's unique as we move into Madison's presidency, because Jefferson didn't host parties and Adams in Washington hosted these very stiff sort of gatherings where people didn't sit. And like the president would come along and say, hello, hello. Nobody wanted to be there. They were very formal, but you know, there was music at Dolly's, there was snuff, <laughs> there was alcohol, there was card games. Um, they were actually fun. And that, so you say, okay, well, so what? Well, the thing, the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, presidential politics or politics in this era, you know, a lot of times the political victories would be won by, you know, wooing 
members of Congress and their wives and showing them a good time. And Dolly was extraordinarily effective at showing members of Congress and their wives a good time. And, and, and this is something that Madison himself was, would never have been able to do. Uh, when he was a young man, uh, the wife of Theodoric Bland, I think in her diary, called him a stiff, gloomy creature at these parties. But Dolly loosened him up. And he actually had a reputation of being a very good dancer of all. <laughs> um, and so it's, uh, it's hard to imagine. But. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. And um, so in the 1808 presidential election, um, Madison runs against Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and Pinckney afterwards is reported to have said, you know, maybe I could have defeated James Madison, but I didn't stand a chance against James and Dolly. This is really, really extraordinary thing about so she's a remarkable woman. Um, Madison, so the origins of their romances, you know, Madison was not somebody who married for uh, social standing. He was a romantic and his first love affair was with this young girl named Kitty Floyd, who was the daughter of delegate from New York. He meets her when he's at a boarding house in the Continental Congress. He proposes marriage, but she ends up jilting him. And as far as anybody knows, and we don't know for sure, but as far as anybody knows, there's nothing after that until Dolly. And huh. Dolly was a widow. Um, and her husband, and she had been a Quaker, her husband and her youngest child, who was just a baby, had died in the Philadelphia flu epidemic in 1793. And, and she's like kind of a stop traffic kind of lady. Um, she's walking down the street and men would just stop and stare at her and like be dumbfounded. And Madison is one of these people. And Mad But see, Madison by 1793 is kind of, you know, one of the big dogs in the government. So he's able to sort of, you know, you know, sort of put the, I don't want to say put the moves on her, but he, you know, courts her. And the marriage, it's hard to say to what extent the marriage at first was a love affair, because again, we have so very little correspondence. Um, Did he destroy the correspondence? Did she? Yeah, they, it was destroyed at some point. Okay. We, we, don't, a, we don't know when. We, I, I mean, maybe the, you know, maybe if you, Professor Stagg at the University of Virginia, who's in charge of their papers, he might know, but that was sort of the level of technical detail that I didn't really need to get into for sure. purposes of the book. Um, but uh, there's this letter that she writes when she's about to, she gets married and she, um, she says, oh, you know, my little son, you know, my pain, my little pain will be taken pain as, as her son who survived will be taken care of and that Madison is kind and there's no real indication that it's a real love match, at least at first. Um, but they, I, I, it evolves into one very much so I think the two of them are profoundly connected to one another and Madison, um, and you know the nice thing about this is that when Madison gets married Dolly Payne's a little boy and Dolly's sister Anna is a teenager and so he sort of marries into this family and there's all these like in the and you know the the Paynes have there's all these the the Todd's I think it's 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 the Todd's there's all these cousins and nieces and nephews running around and 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 he had Madison had a, a reputation for being you know like he was great with kids. So it, 
and it's sort of this interesting thing in his life where, you know, he ha- did not, you know, he was so invested in politics from such a young age that politics was like his vocation. It was his passion from the age of 25 you know, 1776. Well, you know, 18 years later, he's in his early 40s. He's not married. You know, well, he finds this woman who just brings and gives him a whole family all like all at once. Mm, Uh, It's really mm. a very extraordinary, very sweet, kind-hearted thing. It's actually Dolly is, was eulogized. So the phrase, the first lady is actually was Dolly was eulogized by President Zachary Taylor as America's first lady when she died because she moves back up to Washington, D.C. That's right. Um, That's and, right. And, and becomes sort of a focal point, a, a bit eccentric, but sort of a, a social focal point for Washington. Yes, right? she is a bit of an eccentric. Yes, she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's I mean, it's it's one of those things where I had wish I it would have been nice to have more of the correspondence to talk in more detail about that. Um, but there's only so much available. So and does she does she ever run Montpelier? Like, does she run the plantation, or is it like, or is that not sort of? No, that would not that that would not have been her task. I mean, the the um. Well, I mean, she takes it over after he dies, but she okay. sells it relatively quickly. Right. Um. He doesn't actually acquire legal ownership of the plantation until his father dies in 1801. Oh, you can right. Imagine that his father his father lived to be a very old man. I see. Um, and and so Madison essentially he had he had only a few kind of um investments in land here and there but his father lives his father actually is 77 when he dies so his father lived a very long time um and as a matter of fact his mother actually um uh i think her his mother's name was nelly conway um she actually lives even longer she lives until I want to say like 1829. She's almost a oh, hundred. Wow. She, she lives to, she, she, yeah, I, she's, I'm looking up now. She lives to be like 98 when she dies. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. It's an, it's an eternity in that. So age. can you imagine like, I mean, now Nellie was a very nice lady, but can you imagine, you know, like, you know, living with your mother-in-law? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, and actually that is, so the, actually, if you go to Montpelier, if you look very carefully at it, you'll see the portico, the front portico belies the fact that it's actually a duplex. Because right. when Madison moves back there after he marries Dolly, he builds the second, or he doesn't build it, but he he oversees the construction of the second half of it. And so if you're looking at it, like facing it, Madison and Dolly and Payne and Anna lived on the right-hand side and on the left-hand side, his mother and father lived. And then after his father died, they move over to the left-hand side. And at some point they take, they open it up. And then Nellie is given her own sort of sitting room and part. But yeah, it was, so that's actually why they built that. Cause there were actually like two family units living there. So. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Well, all of this. So I guess maybe it's a good time to take a step back and, and sort of close with a question that's, not exactly about Madison, but about writing a biography of Madison. You know, he's he's not a mysterious character, as you say, and there's a lot of material available for people wanting to get extremely technical and write academic books. But you know, you you've written this for an informed, but um, you know, lay audience, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 for the popular reader. Um, 
what what was the what was the urgency other than just you know to balance out Chernow's hagiography of Hamilton? Um, <laughs> right. What, what's the urgency? Why do we need another uh, yeah. Madison biography now? That's a good question. Now I don't want to uh, you know be critical of previous biographers per se, um, uh, but I, I I do think. I thought that there was a need, or I thought that there was maybe not a need. I mean, because that's for the audience to judge. But I, I thought that there was a gap that I thought was interesting, and it, it, and maybe it might have something to do with my background. So, I mean, it's a biography, so it's work of history. And while history and political science are adjacent to one another in terms of like, you know my research skills, my ability to do research was honed through the process of getting my various degrees in political science. Um, I think that I take the analytical tools of political science and particularly early modern political philosophy to the life of Madison. And that is where I think there's a gap that Madison, I think in other books is usually examined from two perspectives. The one, and maybe the sort of the par, you know, the analysis version of this par excellence would be the Ralph Ketchum biography, which is a very long, historically detailed, richly detailed, um, lovingly crafted biography of Madison. But it's written primarily from the perspective of a historian. Um, and so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you can encounter political scientists examining Madison, but um, usually they're very telescopic or tele, um, they're very telescopic. Yeah, they're telescopic in their analysis. So they're going to look very carefully at one period of his life, usually, um, usually the, the Federalist period. And insofar as political scientists and political theorists are interested in looking beyond the Federalist period, it's usually in trying to fashion some kind of explanation as to why Madison seemed to have abandoned his federalism. Mm. Of course, that was the subject of my last book, right? The subject of my last book was really about why Madison abandoned his federalism and what does this say about his true political theory and what does it say about political theory in America in general? Um, so, but I, the, my starting sort of premise, which is implied, by the subtitle, right? America's first politician. And, and I don't mean that in a literal sense. I mean, because obviously politics had been ongoing in America for some time. Um, but he was in many respects, uh, you can think of him as, I mean, in some respects, he was one of the first professional politicians in the sense that unlike Jefferson and unlike Washington, he was not simultaneously managing some big mass of the state. You know, his father effectively subsidized his career in politics up through the 1790s. So he was able to dedicate himself full time to politics, which is something that was a necessary transition in, in our society because the problems of politics were just getting so great that we couldn't have halftime leaders anymore. So there's that. But there's also, I think, this idea that Madison develops a theory of politics as the way to secure justice in the general welfare, which is reminiscent of the political science kind of telescopic analysis. But I, and the argument of the book is that if you look through his career, it's really appropriate to see him as a 
agent within the political sphere and that his actions as a politician, not only do they sort of, they, it's not just that they are done generally in a way that is consistent with his political theory, but also when you look at his behavior in politics, it, 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 it sort of uh, kind of, I don't know, what's the phrase I want to use here? I don't want to say enliven, something more than enlivens, but really- uh, Clarifies expound. maybe? Yeah, it clarifies. I think a good example of that was we were, we were talking about, you know, Federalist 10 and the notion of an extended republic um, and what that meant to him. But then I would say, like, if you look at the difference between Jefferson's Kentucky Resolution and Madison's Virginia Resolution, you can see Madison is leaning into politics mm. as the solution. And so I think that's part of it. And I also think that Madison's sort of desire to kind of be a fulcrum within the political process to try and find the compromises that, you know, um, he, you know, we think of Federalist 10 and we're sort of inclined to see it as this kind of Newtonian system where the different factions will check each other. But it's more than that. Somebody's got to be in there trying to sort of negotiate the compromises. And oftentimes that's Madison. Now, it's not always the case. I mean, we've talked at length about how he, the way he viewed high federalism, I would say, is, is the sort of seeming exception to this, but he viewed high federalism as a threat to the regime itself. So he's not trying to fashion a compromise with the high federalists in like 1795. So that, but, but if you look at the way he operates in say, you know, the 17 or the early 1800s, um, or even, you know, he makes um, Thomas Pinckney, who himself was a Federalist, actually makes him minister to Great Britain. And there's all these sorts of ways in which Madison's career amplifies and elucidates and clarifies his political theory. And so in that respect, Madison comes closer to, I think, a Machiavelli or a Burke um, as a man of really profound political ideas, but also whose life is spent not in the abstract consideration of politics, but actually within the, within the political arena itself. And to understand the ideas, you have to look at them in conjunction with his actions in the arena. And again, it's not, I've never read a biography. I mean, I don't want to be, again, I don't want to criticize people who've written Madisonian biography. But I just felt like when I sat, when I sat about doing this biography, I was like, that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to create a kind of singular Madison. Um, and I think sort of like maybe one I would sort of differentiate my book with is the most recent one written by Noah Feldman, which was called The Three Lives of James Madison, Genius, Partisan, President. And right. I, I'm sort of of the opinion that, that there, there is one life and that you can't, you can't periodize him to that extent. That yes, he lived a very long life and it was a long life spent within the political realm, but you, there, there was a singular Madison and that's what my book is trying to get at in finding that the combination of politics, political action and political ideas. And again, unfortunately, you know, I, I, there are things I don't do in the book. 
So I don't really spend a lot of time talking about his family life. I don't really spend a lot of time talking about his brothers, for instance. The really the only friendship I get into any kind of detail about is his friendship with Jefferson. I'm trying to tell a specific story about Madison as a man of politics. So in that sense, it's more of an it, it's it's a it's an intellectual biography. So if you're interested in like the comprehensive picture the book would probably not be the best book to buy. Probably you want to go to Ketchum, uh, which is an excellent biography. But if you're interested in Madison as a man of politics, then I, I'd like to think that this book has something of value. I'd like to think it does. Well, I'm, I'm personally very excited to see it hit the shelves. And I think that, you know, it'll be hopefully, you know, we can, we can get some energy behind it with our listeners and, and some people get excited. I saw there was a great, Great piece in the Wall Street Journal, and um, I think there's a lot of interest. And, and look, if I can just editorialize here before we close, and we've said this, I don't, I don't think I'm beating a dead horse to repeat it, but we've said this on the podcast a lot, Jay, which is, you know, there's a tendency with the way Americans talk about the founders to turn them into alabaster statues mm -hmm. and to um, make them either perfect or to make them apolitical. And the truth is, is that I think in, in, in both of our assessments, lessons Yes. their accomplishments, because to understand them in, as thoroughly men of the world and of events and of politics and acting under un, great uncertainty and with tremendously high stakes um, in, in very complex and weighty matters is to realize them in full. So yeah. just on a personal note, I'm thrilled that you've written this. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled for you as your friend, but also um, I think as a, as a reader of the genre, I'm excited to see your, your contribution to it. And I hope everyone will go um, go buy the book. And can you uh, tell everyone one last time how to get a, an autographed uh, nameplate for the, for the book? Yeah. So what you'll need to do is just send me an email, jcost241, jcost, not my whole name, J-A-Y, just the letter J, jcost241 at gmail. Um, send me your address. Um, and if you want any kind of personalization, um, I mean, it can't be too long because it's only a three by four plate. Um, but if you want some kind of personalization, let me know. Um, and I will, and I will get it in the mail as quickly as I can. So I don't have the materials yet. I just ordered them. I, I actually, and I designed, by the way, I designed the nameplate myself. I think it looks pretty nice. I kind of have this little background. I, I was the editor of my high school newspaper. So I kind of, I've always had this little <laughs> background sort of like dabbling in, um, in uh, graphic design stuff, nothing too fancy, but I'm, I'm pleased with it. I think it looks nice. Um, so just send me an email with proof of purchase um, and, uh, and your address and any kind of personalization. And as soon as I have all the material together, I will, I will ship it off. So, and then the other caveat I'll put in, I ordered, I ordered a pretty large number of these plates but, you know, with the asterisks of like, while supplies last. Now, if there's demand, I'll, I'll make another order. But if you're looking to get it in before Christmas, if you're looking to do this as a gift, that would be a constraint as well. But it's an opportunity, it's a promotional thing, but also doing it in the sense of like, as a thank you to our listeners, constitutionally speaking, where we're sort of like, we're not one of the big players. We're like one of those bands that like had a hit in the early nineties and then just became <laughs> like a jam band. And we can like, we can always go and like, you know, do a 2000, you know, you know, like, uh, like a theater. We're never going to play like, you know, we're uh, not, yeah, we're not rock, uh, arena rock here. Yeah. But. We're not arena rockers, but we, you know, we always have that good like theater, you know, and like our, our, our people will come and buy the merch and everything too. And this is just a way for me to, 
thank you for for buying our metaphorical merch over the years. I would, I would say if you are concerned about Christmas, one thought would be to buy the book on Amazon as a gift for someone and then send Jay a picture of your Amazon receipt. Yes. Um, or, or some other online bookseller and then have him mail the nameplate to the recipient of the book. Yeah, that's true. So if you're running late, um, but like I said, I should be able to get these. I should be able to put the first tranche out um, in relatively short order. So, but like if we're sort of getting to the point where it's like, you know, December 15th or something like that, and you're a little worried, then yeah, the probably the best thing to do would be for me to, um, you know, uh, give me the address of the receipt. I could put a little note in there too, explaining what it is. So like, you know, your grandpa doesn't get the like, who sent, who's this Jay Cost fella? And why am I, <laughs> ah, I don't understand this, you know? So, you know, we can work it out too. Just send me an email if you need a, you know, specific requests or stuff, like within reason, I'll be happy to, you know, I'm not going to send you, you know, kidney or anything like that, but <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to facilitate because, you know, I, I'm not looking for the book to be, a, and by the way, my goal with these books that I write, like, you know, I usually between all the publicity stuff that I do, I usually I don't think any of my books have made a profit. I'm <laughs> usually between all of the books that I have to buy to do the research. Um, I mean, maybe the last book scratched out a small profit, but I assure you it was substantially less than what minimum wage would have been. <laughs> so I really just do this because I enjoy doing it. I enjoy getting my sort of ideas out there. I love the idea of people reading it and at least like, oh, I mean, even if you think, oh, he's an idiot who doesn't know what he's talking about, at least like engaging with other people and knowing my ideas are being considered. I, it's just such, I, I mean, as somebody who makes a living for having thoughts, it's, it's really kind of essential to my self-identity um and so yeah like my goal here is to sell you know like my last book sold like eight thousand copies now i'm not looking to get i'm not gonna get rich off of this i mean it's i mean it's just that 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 horse has left the barn in the publishing world a long time you don't you don't you don't think there's a musical in the offing no i mean maybe i don't know maybe (laughs) i could get like donald fagan from steely dan to like score james madison musical that would be amazing there you Uh, go but i'm just you know i just i just want to get this out there and ultimately like my goal my professional goal is to sell enough copies so if i go back to the publisher in a couple years with another idea they'll let me write it because that's always the danger like if the book like flushes out and just is a complete dog then i'll then i won't get to write another book that's really my only goal so that I can keep up the insanity of being a, a, an author of books, which is just an insane thing to do nowadays. But for some reason, I, I like it. I already have another book plan. We'll talk about that in the next podcast episode. Good, good. All right. Well, everyone, thank you so much. And as your one-time host, and Jay, thank you for being <laughs> a one-time guest. Yes. Um, we'll be back to Congress very soon, um, but please do go buy the book, and we will speak to you all next time.